This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Our guest today is Dr. Tony Fields. Dr. Fields is the former president of the National Cancer Institute of Canada and has served on the boards of the Canadian Cancer Society, the Canadian Breast Cancer Research Alliance, the Canadian Oncology Society, and the Canadian Association of Provincial Cancer Agencies. Dr. Fields holds an Order of Canada and was named one of Alberta's top 100 physicians of the century. He now serves as McEwen University's first chancellor. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender, with our guest, Dr. Tony Fields. Dr. Tony, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. It's so wonderful to see you, uh, Tony. And, you know, you were born in that tiny but beautiful island of Barbados. (laughs) Let's start there. (laughs) Um, Did you have any idea when you were a kid that one day you would become one of Canada's leading medical oncologists? And all the list of things just mentioned, uh, the president of the National Cancer Institute of Canada, the, the director of the Cross Cancer Institute in Alberta, and also a member of the Order of Canada. Did you have any idea that these things would, uh, these honors would accumulate to you when you were in that tiny island of Barbados? Uh, really, Andy, I had absolutely no idea. And in fact, if we went right back to when I was a little child, and you, uh, you might have embarrassed me if you'd asked me where Canada was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, life, I would, I would say that life has been a sort of a long and winding road. And one of the statements I heard, one of the sayings that kind of resonated with me was uh, that old uh, baseball saying, uh, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that I mean, this is a it's been a remarkable journey for you. And I was reading somewhere where you talked about um, growing up in Barbados um, just before you attended Harrison College. I was also a Harrison College student, so I I, I sort of got attracted to that story. Um, I think you were about eight or nine years old. Your, your mom was making you a uh, some lunch. And you were off to do an exam, which most kids do around that age, in order to decide where you're going to go next in terms of uh, high school. And um, and you ended up at Harson College. How did you make it into Harson College? Uh, because you know that's a very prestigious high school. And how did your experience there at the uh, Harson College prepare you for uh, your university days in, in the UK? Well, you know, first of all. It's one of the things about Barbados. In those days, the entrance to Harrison College, you had to do an examination. You were between eight and nine years old, and you did this examination at a time of life when you didn't even know really what an examination meant. But uh, And you did not know on that day 
that your whole future hinged on how you performed in that examination, which would determine which school you were sent to. And of course, as you and I know, in those days, the, the top island schools were segregated, male and female. And for boys, if you, if you didn't get to Harrison College or Lodge School, your chances of getting a university education would be very, very small unless you had very wealthy parents. So I, uh, and you, you mentioned the lunchbox. I can remember to me, the high point of that day was that my mother had bought a lunchbox for me and I knew there was a roast beef sandwich in this lunchbox. And there I was looking forward to the lunch break in between examinations that I could enjoy this sandwich from my, uh, my new lunchbox. Yeah, you, you were thinking about the future <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and who, who, how could a boy of that age really understand? I mean, you, you knew your parents had really, you knew they wanted you to do well and they wanted you to get to Harrison College. But how could you appreciate what hung on that single day? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned in, a, in an interview that you happened upon your career in medicine by chance. And um, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit upon what helped you make that large commitment that medicine requires at that moment in time. And how are you able to motivate yourself to continue moving forward through what many would call a challenging area of study, even though you were, you know, you had just kind of happened upon that idea? Well, interesting again, and and here you see. Sometimes I felt feel that my life has almost sort of hung by a little thread, and so yes, my ambition in school days was to make it to university. But when I think back now, to me that was the lifetime achievement, and that was that was the horizon of, of my ambition, perhaps. But then what do you do with, with this? And I, I actually worked for a while in England as a technician in a research lab, an industrial research lab. And then I went back to Barbados. And what took me back was that was the year of Barbados's independence. And I wanted to be there for independence. And I had some vague idea that perhaps there might be an opportunity to be a career diplomat. And uh, anyhow, I went to Barbados and independence and so on. And uh, I taught for a couple of years there. At, at first at Queen's College one year, I was acting for a year and then acting at Lodge. But meanwhile, I had met and married a Canadian volunteer with the Canadian University Service Overseas. And we decided that when her term was finished, we moved to Canada together and came to Canada, Edmonton, and I looked for a job and I got a job as a technician in the production laboratory of the steel factory here. Stelco used to have two steel plants in Edmonton. And what this, what was the long-term? And there was I really without long-term ambitions. And my wife said, why don't you take advantage. The University of Alberta has this vocational counseling service. So it's it's free. And uh, why don't you see what that holds? And I, I went to this. It was at the top floor of the Students' Union building. 
and they put me through three days of testing, all sorts of uh, testing. And then I had a debriefing interview with the counselor. And the counselor said, your aptitude tests and everything point to with above the 95% confidence level says that you should be a physician. Wow. And that was the first time I came face to face with this. To me, my, I, I wanted to dismiss this. I thought I was much too old to start all over again on a new track. Uh, I thought I had never had an ambition to be a physician. And this man, his name was Mr. Fisher, and I really owe him a lot. When I was director of the cross, I thought I must look, see if I can find him and thank him for what he did for me. But I, uh, sadly, I saw his obituary in the, in the journal, and uh, I had never thanked him for what, what he did. But I argued with him. I gave him all the reasons that I really shouldn't be prepared to embark on this new journey at, that, at my age. And he finally said, did I know how old Albert Schweitzer was? when he started medical school. Well, I had no idea. I'd heard of Albert Schweitzer, who hadn't. But, uh, and he said he was 35 years old. And that was the tipping point. And as a result, I, um, I, I did apply for medicine. And I, my wife encouraged me to, uh, on this embarkation. And, and so I made an appointment with the assistant dean of the faculty of medicine in charge of admissions. And she was very nice and very kind. And she, she said that uh, she was going to tell me right away so that she didn't want me to go down and then just be disappointed. She said, the medical school here is for Albertans. Mm-hmm. And I, I can tell you that you would not gain entry uh, to it because you're not Albertan. And I said, but... You know, I'm a landed immigrant. I live here and I work here, surely. And she said no. And so that was it. And she was, we we were walking to leave her office and she was very kindly walking to see me out. And she said, did your wife manage to get a job here? And I said, well, yes. I said, she's from Edmonton and she's returned to her teaching job. Oh, she said, your wife's Canadian, Albertan said, yes. She said, let me speak to the admissions committee. And in a week, I got a letter saying if I cared to apply to this medical school, I would be considered an Albertan. Mm. So just a a thread. That's that's so interesting. There's so much to unpack there. And um, if you don't mind me asking, what year was that? That would have been 19, um, would have been 1969. I see. Okay. And then what I did, because interestingly enough, in my journey through Harrison College and University, I had never, ever taken any biology. So from a scientific point of view, I didn't know the difference between a plant and an animal. (laughs) So uh, I did a year as a special student doing biology and zoology and genetics and then applied, meanwhile, to medical school and was admitted in 1970. So I just want to kind of carry off from that answer. You know, we see that things have changed, obviously, from 1969 now 
the, the, the university does accept international students. But it's interesting to see that back then there was a little bit of, you know, ambiguity around an, an international student getting admission to the school. What I wanted to ask you next was about your experience in medical school in particular. So like, as we know, uh, you know, black men and women are largely underrepresented in the field of medicine here in Canada, even today. And I don't even want to think about how it must have been, you know, back then. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what it was like navigating medical school, you know, as a black man, as, as somebody that, um, you know, was maybe a little bit older. And um, were there any moments where you felt as though you were perhaps representing an entire race or where you felt a little bit of pressure due to how you were made? Uh, uh, very interesting question. And you're absolutely right in terms of the prevalence or lack of prevalence of black students. I was the only black student in my class. We started with 118 students and uh, I was the only black. Mm. And there was a black student who was about two years ahead of me. I never actually got to meet him, but uh, that was it. But I took to, to medicine like a duck to water. I absolutely enjoyed it. And I can honestly say that I never felt any pressure from being, because I was black. I, I never, during medical school, thought that any doors were closed or there was any exclusion from my colleagues, my classmates. And in fact, I wasn't a, a student activist. I didn't volunteer for the student association or anything. But when it came to graduation year, the medical class asked me to be their graduating class president. And of course, I was happy to accept that. Wow, that's awesome. And you know what? These are the kind of stories that we love to hear, that you were able to enter into this medical school in a, in a place where you were vastly underrepresented and you were still able to flourish and you were still able to feel comfortable. Yeah, and, you know, it's just interesting that I, I can, as I look back on that, it didn't enter my consciousness. I felt that I was accepted by my peers, by my teachers, and by patients. And I probably, if I go back, I might have felt some nervousness in approaching patients. But what I found is that when you were identified, you identified yourself as a medical student, they accepted you as a medical student. And I found the same thing in my postgraduate training, and I found the same thing in my practice. And, and I would like to encourage Black people to not every time you enter a room say, to yourself, oh my goodness, I'm black. What's how, how? How is this going? You you are there. You are you. You have something to offer. You have a walk in with confidence. I'll tell a little aside. I'll fast forward to when I came on staff here at the Cross Cancer Institute, and with a, a, in fact a tenure track appointment at the university at the same time, and I had to teach. And one of the courses that I had to teach was in nutrition because people here considered me an expert on nutrition, which is another story in itself. And I was having to really bone up <laughs> on my nutri nutritional aspects to teach this. So here I am as a first ever time as a lecturer, giving lectures at the university level. And I found myself struggling a bit. That, and I realized when I analyzed it, I was trying to show the depth of my knowledge that I, uh, I impressed the students, that how much I knew and so on. 
and a revelation came. You know, the students expect you to know. You're the, you're, you're the professor. You come in and you're at the podium. They expect you don't have to prove to them that you know. What you have to do is to find the simplest and most effective way of getting across what they need to know. And that was a, a, a huge transition for me in terms of, of, of teaching. Now, why do I say that? You, you can enter with confidence knowing that that's where you're starting. And, and you're, you're not, you don't have to fake anything and you don't have to, you don't have to begin every relationship with trying to establish yourself and prove that you have a right to be where you are. And I think being black, that may be something that may be useful. Don't feel that as a black person, you have to start off by establishing yourself as being appropriate for that situation. Go like you own it. I completely agree. What do you think, Andy? Well, you know, it's very interesting because I think the experience of Black people coming from the Caribbean, and particularly from Barbados, where we, we're both from, um, is quite different from the experience of Blacks in the United States. And I say this because every time I've met uh, Black folks in the United States, they, they always seem to have like a chip on their shoulders about something, you know, and, uh, and it has to do with the fact that they are Black and they've been discriminated against so badly in the United States. Back in Barbados, we, we grew up in Barbados, and we didn't feel that kind of need to have a chip on our shoulders in many respects because we had, uh, we had people on television that looked like us. We had people in parliament that were Black. We had people in the medical profession that were Black. We had people in all different types of societal jobs that were, were Black. So in some ways, I think we were prepared for that. You know? um, and then we, when you come to a, a country where it is uh, predominantly white, uh, that's where you might find yourself in, in, in a little bit of a quandary. But for some reason, I think, and I think this maybe has to do with Barbadians themselves, but um, our Caribbean people, they tend to have that kind of self-assurance coming into the society and, and less of a, uh, a desire to, to have to prove yourself, you know, um, because you've, you, you've been accustomed to, to, to having those kind of positions uh, back home. Did you find that was the case with you coming into Canada? I did, yes, I did. But there were some times when I was conscious of it. For example, driving to rural Alberta and stopping in at a, at a facility. I remember once stop, going into a hotel in rural Alberta, and it was, a, it was a, 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 just a little local hotel, and it had a big bar, and it was a sort of a social place, a bit like a large English pub almost. And I walked into the room to use the telephone. This was long before cell phones. And conversation stopped. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that was one of those occasions when you suddenly realize that you are a black person walking into somewhere where this just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But there was no animosity involved. or I felt a little startled, but I, I didn't feel uncomfortable. Interesting. I was going to ask you a question about your wife because I, I, I know that uh, we, we know the CUSO program very well in Barbados because a lot of Canadian young people uh, took advantage of the CUSO program and they came and volunteered as teachers in the island and uh, and that's how you met her that's right i i wonder if having uh you know 
having a white wife, and especially a white Canadian wife, helps you to adjust to Canada a lot faster than you would have otherwise? I think it probably did, Andy. Yes, I think it did. You know, I was accepted by her family, and that gave me an in. And then because medical school and postgraduate training and my practice and work were so intense, our social circle tended to be with her friends and colleagues from her. She was a career teacher from her school and so on, and my class, a few of my classmates. So we had a sort of a narrow social circle. But I think without her, if I had been here as a single person, my my social experiences would have been quite different, more confined probably. And because of the busyness of medical school, probably almost 100% within that little and, and that little bubble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, you know, when I first came to Canada, uh, I went to Ontario first, and then I taught in Quebec for a while. And when I was in Quebec, um, I got this job to come to Edmonton, Alberta. And when I first came to Edmonton, I think it was 1998, the first person of color I met was Phil Fraser. And you remember Phil, eh? <laughs> Phil Fraser was a wonderful guy who never considered obstacles uh, to his path uh, because of color. He, would, he did everything that anybody, I think, could, could want to do because he was so positive about life and he was such a great influence on me. But Phil told me that, um, he said, the first time I met him, he says, you have to meet this wonderful Barbadian who has, is at the top of his field in oncology. And I think that's when we first met. And I, we met uh, at the faculty club, I believe, over dinner one evening. And But since then, I've been very impressed by the way in which you lead your life. And, the you know, your life's work has been a blend, I think, of excellence, perseverance, patience, compassion. And everybody I talk to say the same thing about you, that you have those kind of qualities. Um, maybe it comes from being a, a great doctor, but we, we see you as an ideal role model, not just for Black people, but for all people. And I wanted to know, how do you maintain your positivity and your hope uh, during these times of great uncertainty and chaos and division that we are seeing today? Does it have anything to do with your profession itself? Does it have anything to do with your interaction with cancer patients? Great questions, Andy. And first of all, let me say that I had huge admiration for Phil. And one of the things that I was really touched by was because I considered Phil to me was a hero. He was uh, absolutely on the pedestal. And he took such an interest in me and he encouraged me in a number of directions. I will never forget Phil Fraser. He's uh, yeah, wonderful. But I, I would say very likely dealing with cancer has helped in that way and in, in this attitude. One of the things, I found it very easy to empathize with cancer patients. With cancer patients, I learned a lot and I learned from cancer patients so very much because there I was in an intimate relationship with persons who were facing 
this often dreadful disease and were in these very uncertain situations. Can my cancer be cured or not? Will the treatment work or won't it? If, uh, if I know that there is no cure now, what happens between now and then? And I learned so much about from, from my patients about fortitude, about courage in the face of, uh, of uncertainty and uh, very difficult prospects. And I found that one can translate that, one can transfer that into other situations. And, and yes, so when we have had setbacks or upheavals, and I might think of two, for example, back in the 90s when the provincial government cut over three years, they cut a total of about 25% out of the health budget, and we had to somehow learn to deal with that while, while still delivering the care and treatment that people need. Or in 2008, when all of a sudden the health authorities were, 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 were eradicated and there was this new monolithic Alberta Health Services that was a tremendous disruption. It happened so suddenly and abruptly. And at times like that, you're faced with this massive uncertainty. You're faced with these very challenging prospects. But that's when you must look for opportunities. How do we deal with it? What can we learn from it? How can we swim against this current? How can we come through it even stronger, as it were? And one of the things I used to use as an administrator with, my, with the team I was working with, I would say, yeah, this is a really tough situation. I know everyone wants to ventilate, so we can have 10 to 15 minutes of ventilation. And at the end of that, I'm going to say, okay, we've ventilated. Now what are we going to do? <laughs> and we need everyone's creativity. We need you to focus all your creativity and efforts and work out how we can tackle this and how we can come through. We work from principles. We work from values. We look for opportunities. We try to be creative, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to just kind of switch gears. I had a question for you. You know, I was doing a little bit of research and the World Health Organization right now um, they're saying that cancer is one of the leading causes of death worldwide, uh, affecting men and women, young and old across the globe. So I was I was wondering uh, if you could shed a little bit of insight from all the knowledge you've accumulated over the years. What is it that you believe attributes most to this global health crisis? And you were talking a little bit earlier about um, nutrition and uh, how you had a little bit of experience with that. I was wondering for our listeners, if you could talk a little bit about for those that are interested in cancer prevention in their lives, is there anything that they can do? You know, what advice would you give to them to, to maybe try to prevent the occurrence of cancer within their life? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'll do my best not to talk for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, cancer is a serious threat uh, to, to health nationally here and globally. Cancer has overtaken heart and stroke 
as the leading cause of death. And a bit more dramatically, for a long time, cancer has been the leading cause of premature death. People sometimes think, well, cancer is just a disease of old, old people. But if you were to look at Canadians in their most productive years of life, which we define that as sort of from age 35 to 64 or so. I'm well past that. So, <laughs> But um, if you look at people in that age group, cancer is responsible in Canada for more deaths than heart and stroke and other circulatory disorders, unintentional injuries and infectious diseases all put together. Uh, Take COVID out off the table for a while, and so it's it is a it's a massive burden on us. Now, coming to what to do about cancer, we can and must fight this on many fronts. And I changed from someone who was trained to deal with the patient in front of me, and it was through the connection with the National Cancer Institute that I evolved into someone more interested in what about the patients that I don't see? What about the patients that don't make it to the doors of the Cross Cancer Institute? And this brings you into what the technical term is cancer control. What can we do to deal with the scourge that puts such a massive burden on us as individuals, on us as a society? What can we do overall about this? And we have to tackle this on many fronts. And these would be from prevention through screening, early detection, treatment, rehabilitation, supportive care, and for some end-of-life care and palliative care. But above all, we have to recognize that the instruments we have to deal on these fronts are, are blunt. So the National Cancer Institute said, dealing with those fronts, that there are four cardinal boxes. Two of them we labeled as research. Fundamental research, which is just asking questions why and how, but from which things can be teased out where we can do sort of intervention research. Can we shape this into something that is a weapon against cancer in some way? And then program development, program implementation, and then uh, surveillance and monitoring to keep our finger on the pulse. And those four cardinal boxes linked by knowledge synthesis and decision-making. And we published the National Cancer Institute Framework for Cancer Control, which described that, captured it and put it together. Now, back to your question about prevention. Yes, absolutely, cancer is preventable to a bigger extent than we might think. And remember, we're talking about a disease where Canada today, just over one in two Canadians will get cancer and about one in four will die from cancer. So it is a big deal. Now, we think that at least 30% of cancer in our Western society can be prevented. And how can it be prevented? There are things that are within our own purviews. So diet is important. 
And in terms of diet, what are the, the aims? To maintain ideal body weight and eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Uh, exercise is important. So, you know, no couch potatoes, please. Get out there and, <laughs> and exercise. Don't smoke. And, uh, and be careful about sun exposures. So these are things that people can do. And, you know, it is, it is so easy to implement and to actually get the rubber on the road for people to do these simple things. But uh, people are much more concerned about what's, uh, what's being done to us. So when you start the conversation about these, they will say, well, it's the pollution in the air or it's the... I'm going to give a, a little analogy. It's a, a little aside. I remember when mad cow disease was, you know, was, was rampant. And when a single mad cow, a single cow was, was diagnosed with mad cow disease in Alberta, it changed the sort of boundaries, the international traffic in beef instantly. And that, that made me think of when the European Union way back decided to ban the imports of British beef because of the of mad cow disease. And I could just imagine the boardroom in Europe where this was decided, people sitting around smoking and saying we must ban British beef from importation when more people die from smoking in a few days in Europe than the, the cumulative history throughout time of people that have died of mad cow disease. But it's this, people are much more concerned about what's being done to them than what they can do for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, it's concerning to know that, you know, the statistics put it at one in two of us, you know, potentially could get it. I think it's also good to know that, as you mentioned, 30% of it is, is potentially um, preventable there. So... That's all really good, really good insightful information. Thank you for that. Yeah, this you know, maybe maybe you're taking that same kind of attitude to your latest challenge, which is uh, now the first uh, chancellor of of McEwen University. Because, um, but are there any other things that um, you learned from your experience uh, being a director of a cancer institute? Uh, you know, playing such a major role as a leader in cancer research that you can apply to your new job as Chancellor of McEwen. And secondly, um, what, how is it going? And where do you think the university will go in the next five years as you lead this university? Now, Andy, uh, one of the things I must say is that uh, being a chancellor is a bit like being a lieutenant governor. <laughs> so a chancellor is... The ceremonial, the ceremonial function. The chancellor has the authority to grant degrees. The chancellor presides over convocation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The chancellor is a member of the board of governors, and um, I actually attend not just the board, but I'm an ex officio member of all of the board's committees. As an example, chancellor has a close relationship with the president and vice chancellor, but. The president is the prime minister and the chancellor is the governor general. So the uh, chancellor does not have direct authority, but the chancellor can certainly act as 
a role model, can act as a wise counsel. The chancellor can act and is expected to act as a bridge to the community, to use what, what influence the chancellor has within the community at large, to use that to McEwen's advantage. And, uh, but one of the things that I'm looking forward to, which I haven't been able to do as yet, is to interact with students. Now, how can I interact? The chancellor is not an ombudsman. You can't come and say, <laughs> Mr. Chancellor, I have this problem. Can you fix it for me? I can't, but I can get to, to understand the students' concerns and uh, experiences and ambitions. And Zach made the point early on that there's been a tremendous evolution of university students since the days I was a university student myself. So I'm looking forward to actually having some ways of relatively informally interacting with the students at McEwen. I hope I can uh, encourage them. And as and this is the uh, sort of role model. And that, well, if he could do this, why can't I? So uh, this is something very much I'm looking forward to. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> and that's that's a that's a really good segue into what I was actually going to ask you next, because you know you you're looking to get in touch with the students and and try to make a little bit of an impact there. I think that's really good. I think there's there's a lot that can be done there in terms of inspiring students. And and to that end, you know, there's likely going to be many young black men and women that will listen to this episode. And some of them may be considering a career in medicine. Some of them might be on the fence um, because it can be a little bit daunting, um, something that is, you know, so coveted, so sought after. And I was wondering, um, you know, what would you like to tell them? You, you touched a little bit on it earlier, but I was wondering if you, if you focus in on it, what would you like to tell them about, uh, you know, following their dreams and potentially getting into that field and, and what they can expect? Well, the first thing I would really encourage them if that's what they want to do, to pursue it. And to and to quote Mr. Obama, yes, I can. Now, these days, as I've learned, there's a lot more structure to getting into medical school than there used to be. For example, in my day, we had to do the MCAT exam, Medical College Admissions Test. And we just did that test. We didn't take it that seriously. We, we, people just went and they did that as one of the things you had to do. Nowadays, you would be amazed at the detailed study that people put into this test. It seems to mean a lot more in terms of getting in or not. And there are all sorts of there are massive aids to performance in the MCAT test and so on. So in a sense, one of the differences between students in my day and students today is you probably have to do more structured work to get into medical school. You also have to think about the interview. The more you can learn about what the interview may be looking for, the better. And you also should pay some attention to what the admissions people are going to be looking at in terms of what you have done. So for example, as I've learned from, from students and postgraduate trainees, for example, and some of my own 
connections, friends' connections, who have successfully made it into medical school. One of the things that's important is to show that some volunteer activity that could be relevant. So, yes, I think people have to take it pretty seriously because it is a very stiff competition. Thank you. That's great advice. That's great advice. And I just say, you know, you can look back now in life and you can see where you came from and, uh, and how you got here. And that sometimes informs your the wisdom that you have uh, that you can impart to, to students and younger people. So be thankful very much to have you on. Um, I'm sure that our, our audience would be delighted to, to hear your story and to see your success over the years and, the, and to understand how you were able to manage to, to get to where you are. And it gives us a lot of encouragement that, um, that if, you know, if Tony can do it, we can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dr. Field. We really appreciate you coming on. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Zach. All the very best, Andy. Yeah, thank you very much, Tony. And all the best to your wife as well. Thank you. Take care. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. I'm <laughs>